Romans chapter 9. I'll be reading the first 18 verses. And that will be what we will cover this morning as well, Lord willing. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. So as we get ready to start this section here, what I want to do is, as we're getting ready in a new section in Romans, we just finished chapter 8 last week, I want to just kind of recap Romans so far real briefly as we enter this new section to kind of get our bearing where we are now in this great letter. And we're about to enter this new section in the book of Romans, and as we come here, uh, Romans, as we've been saying all along, is a detailed exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The theme verse for this whole entire book can be found in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So from those two verses, we see that the gospel is... is the power of God for salvation. So it is God's working salvation in us, and it is also then a revelation of his righteousness as it is revealed to everyone who believes. And then moving on from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, we see that God's righteousness is revealed in his wrath against sinners, both Jew and Gentile. And then we get to that great portion at the end of chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, 
where we see now God's righteousness revealed, not in his wrath against sinners, but apart from the law. His righteousness revealed apart from the law to the man or the woman who has faith in Christ. That justification that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ, who, as Paul says in that section, he is our propitiation. A big fancy word that means that he is our atoning sacrifice. He is the one who, upon his death on the cross, paid our sin debt and also then appeased the wrath of God that was uh, deserved by us. So God's wrath was upon us. Christ came and died, and that, ra- that death then appeased that wrath. So now God is able to move forward with us in grace. And then as we get to chapter 4, we see that justification, which is by grace through faith, has always been by grace through faith. It has always been God's plan of salvation, all the way to the very beginning, as he looks at the life of Abraham as a case study how justification has always been by faith. Abraham was not justified by anything he did. He was not justified by circumcision. He was not justified by his obedience. He was justified because he believed God, and it was accounted him as righteousness all the way back in Genesis 15. And then in Romans 5, all the way to the end of Romans 8, we now see many of the benefits of justification and the gospel, how we have peace with God in Romans 5, 1 through 11, how we have union with Christ in Romans 5, 12 through 21, how we have freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the law in Romans 6 and 7, and then how the Holy Spirit lives in us and works in us and sanctifies us and preserves us firm in our faith until the very end. We saw all of that in Romans 8. Then what we've been arguing and what I argued last week is that Paul then really kind of concludes his argument at the end of Romans 8. He concludes his exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ at the end of Romans 8. But as we also noted, he doesn't begin then the practical outworking of that until Romans chapter 12. So we've got this kind of section here, Romans 9 through 11, that is sort of an excursus. It's sort of a, a... a parenthesis, if you will, in his argument. And the reason it's a sidebar and excursus is because if the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek, why then have most Jews rejected this gospel message? Why have most Jews rejected their Messiah? And Paul will answer this question in three broad ways through these chapters here, 9, 10, and 11. He's going to answer this question from the viewpoint of God's sovereignty, his divine sovereignty in Romans chapter 9. He's going to argue from the viewpoint of human responsibility in Romans chapter 10. And he's going to argue from the viewpoint of God's final saving purposes in Romans chapter 11. And through it all, we're going to see that God's purpose for Israel hasn't failed. It just needs to be properly understood. Now, before we get into Romans 9, though, I want to do my own little excursus here on the idea of predestination and reprobation, because we're going to be talking about that throughout Romans chapter 9, particularly. And it goes back to a question that was asked a few weeks ago that I was going to address last week, but then I punted till this week. And that was a a point where Mark kind of laughed at me, (laughs) saying that I was kind of punting until this week. But I'm going to address it now, so I'm going to pay the piper at this point. 
So a question was asked a few weeks ago regarding God's predestination of the elect. And the question essentially went like this. How does this idea of God predestinate, uh, predestining the elect into salvation, how does this sort of coincide? How does this fit together with the free offer of the gospel to any and all who believe? Because if you believe Romans or John chapter 3, uh, that God you know, gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes will be saved, will not see death, or will, see, will have eternal life, or uh, Romans 10, 13, uh, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Or Acts chapter 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you will be saved. All these things sort of point to what we do. We believe. We are called to believe, and that we obey that call to believe. How does that fit with predestination? How God chooses before the foundation of the world those who will be in Christ. Now, let me first start by saying that the doctrine of predestination is tough to hear. And it is tough to accept. It goes against our lived experiences, especially when you consider human freedom and responsibility. Now, maybe some of you are raised in the church, so you never really recall a time in your life where you were an unbeliever. But at least in my case, I definitely recall a time in my life when I was an unbeliever. And I recall a time in my life where I came to Christ by faith. I made a decision. The the truth was presented to me, and I believed it. And then I started amending my life because of that. So it goes against many of our lived experiences. Now, when we look at the doctrine of predestination and reprobation, they properly fall under what is typically called God's eternal decree. God's eternal decree. So the other handout I gave you is a printout of the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 3, which is on God's eternal decree. Now, we're not going to read all of it, but I will read at least a few of these paragraphs here, particularly the first one, where it says here, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now that's fancy 17th century English way of saying that God ordains all things, yet in such a way that it doesn't harm our freedom, it doesn't harm the natural order of things, And it doesn't harm the contingency of laws of physics or laws of nature or things like that. In fact, what it does is God's sovereignty upholds them. It gives them a foundation to rest upon. They are established in this way. Now you're like, well, how does that work? I don't know how that works. (laughs) I I can't square the circle. But that's what the Bible teaches. Okay? And the eternal decree finds it's it's confirmed in Scripture in many places, but one particular key verse is Ephesians 1, verse 11, where Paul writes, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his, that is God's purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So how many things does God work after the counsel of his will? All things. How many things fall outside of the counsel of his will? Nothing. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
Now, later on, the Westminster Confession of Faith will talk about how is God's eternal decree carried out. It's carried out by the works of creation, and it's carried out by his providence, where he governs all things. So different subjects. But here, the idea is that he ordains everything which comes to pass. So how many things does he ordain which comes to pass? Everything. How many things does he not ordain? Nothing. Okay? So we need to keep these truths in mind. This is what the Bible teaches. Now, within this eternal decree is God's decree, then, of predestination and reprobation. And we're going to see this played out in Romans 9. But it essentially goes like this. When God decrees to save some and damn others, it occurs within a context of fallen humanity. Okay, so when he considers his decree of uh, predestination and his decree of reprobation, he is already looking at at humanity as fallen. There's a fancy, big fancy theological word that describes this. It's called infralapsarianism. There's two views. There's supralapsarianism. There's infralapsarianism. So if you think of the word lapse, you ever, everybody, you know what the word lapse means. I've had a lapse. I, it's, it just needs to fall. So the idea is, is God's decree of predestination, is it before the decree of, of the fall or is it after the decree of the fall? Okay, that's all it means. Big fancy theologically Latin words that describe a very simple concept at least. But when God, I believe, and I believe the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches that, I believe the three forms of unity teach this, I believe... This is the majority report in Reformed thinking. Not everyone thinks this, but this is the majority report, is that when God chooses to elect some and pass over others, he is doing so in the context of a fallen humanity. So the decree to allow man to fall has already logically happened in God's decree. And he's now choosing over fallen humanity to save some and to let others go to justice. That's essentially what's going on here. So God's decree of predestination is him choosing to extend mercy and grace to those who deserve death and damnation. And his decree of reprobation is God then freely choosing to withhold mercy and pass over some and allow them to face divine justice. Or put it another way, the fall subjects all of mankind to wrath and judgment. God extends grace and mercy to some and allows the rest to face justice. Now look again at your handout at paragraphs 5, 6, and 7. In paragraph 5, the Westminster Divines write, Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel of his good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them, or anything in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto." And all the pray, all to the praise of his glorious grace. So here God is talking about how he elects some unto salvation and life, not based on anything they did, not on any foreseen faith, not on any foreseen good works that they would do, 
but freely and unchangeably by his mere grace and love. Paragraph 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. So he chooses the end, salvation. He chooses the means to those ends. How you, how you were raised, where you were you born, who you were born to, where you were born, what church you grew up in, if you grew up in a church, who would present the gospel to you. All these things, by God's providence, are being governed so that the elect, those whom he chose, will come to salvation and will be preserved until the end. Okay? So he foreordains all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, that infralapsarian view that he's choosing them after the fall, those who are being fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit working in due season. So here are the means, the, the order. Here you see the order of salvation. They are justified, they are adopted, they are sanctified and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are, there, neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. So he chooses the elect, he foreordains all the means to their salvation, and those will be carried out immutably and unchangeably because of God's free uh, and most eternal and free purpose of his will. Seven. The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will. Notice how the Westminster divines are really emphasizing God's freedom, God's will, his un- the unchangeableness of his will. They're really emphasizing this. So out of the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. So he elects the, he, he chooses the elect into salvation for the praise and glory of his grace, and he passes over the reprobate for the praise and glory of his justice. So are you catching a theme here? This is, what is the purpose of all things? The glory of God, the glory of his grace, the glory of his justice, the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. So what about the offer of the free gospel? As we have previously said, God not only chooses the ends, but also the means to those ends. So God predestines the elect into salvation and sovereignly orchestrates through his providence the how and the when they are saved. There are many examples you can give here. So my own example, you could say, well, by God's providence, at a certain point in my life, I met a certain person who gave me a certain book. I read said book. And I came to a point where I, a point of crisis in my mind, where I decided I could no longer live as an unbeliever. The truths that were being presented to me were too compelling. Now, all the things that were working in my life up to that point were leading me to that point of decision. All of these were sovereignly guided and orchestrated by God's providence to lead me to that point because. By God's grace and his mercy, not because of anything I've done, not because of any faith I would hold, God elected me before the foundation of the world and then ordained those means to that point where I would make that decision. And then he holds me firm in my faith until the end. Philippians 1.6, right? He who began a good work in you will complete it 
on the day of Christ Jesus. Now, the last paragraph of the Confession of Faith here, 8, tells us that this doctrine, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination, is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men intending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. By vocation, he means their calling. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise and reverence and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. In other words, we're not to use the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, as a cudgel to, or, or in, a, in an abusive way, you know, where you go and somebody sins and you say, well, you're obviously not of the elect. Well, you don't know that. Or you don't know whether someone is of the elect or not of the elect. That is not your purview. You're not privy to that information. You are to treat every person as an opportunity, if they're not in the church, to present the gospel. You are to treat every person in the church as one who is saved, unless they are giving obvious evidence by their behavior, by the fruit. That's what Jesus says, right? By their fruit you shall know them, unless they are giving obvious evidence of their disobedience. And then you have to treat them if, if it need be, by excommunication, you have to treat them as an unbeliever. But we don't have this information. We're not privy to God's eternal decree, which is why then we are commanded to preach the gospel to any and all who will receive it. Because we don't know who the elect are. So, I mean, I don't pretend that this is an easy-peasy doctrine or that this answer is completely satisfactory, but this is an article of faith. We are called to believe this. And I wouldn't say this except that this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible te- clearly teaches this truth of election and also of the free offer of the gospel. Ephesians 1.4, God has chosen us to be in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Yet Romans 10.13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Both are true. Both are to be taught. Both are to be properly understood in how they mesh together in their context. And what I do know is this, that those who call upon the name of the Lord in faith, who put sin to death, who grow in holiness, and who persevere firm in their faith to the end, are those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what I can confidently say based on the scriptures. Well, as we get to Romans 9, I honestly don't think I'm going to get through a half here, but we'll, we'll barrel ahead. He starts in Romans 8.39. Paul just finishes by saying in that glorious section there, essentially nothing and no one will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing and no one, no circumstances, no people, no troubles will separate you from the love of God because God holds you in his hands with an unbreakable love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And after giving nearly eight full chapters on the exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is for the Jew first and then the Gentiles, Paul closes with this grand statement on the love of God. But if you were to look at the church at the time that Paul wrote Romans, you would see that the church overall was mostly Gentile. I mean, where did Paul go when he when he went on his missionary journeys? Where did he go? He went into the Gentile world. Now, 
he would always go to Jews first. And then when he was inevitably rejected by the Jewish community in whatever town he went into, then he would take it to the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles would flock to the gospel. So you'd have some Jewish converts, but then you'd have many, many more Gentile converts. So by the time Paul writes Romans, the church, though beginning very in the very beginning, mostly Jewish, is now probably mostly Gentile, even by 57 AD at the writing of Romans. So then the question is raised, what about the Jews? Many Jews have rejected the gospel. Many Jews have rejected their Messiah. Even during Paul's ministry, he was sought and pursued by Jews out to kill him. They saw Paul as a traitor. They saw him as a turncoat. They saw him as a sellout. Yet here in verses 1 to 3, we see Paul's great love for his own people. Where he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me that in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The testimony of Paul's conscience is his great sorrow and unceasing grief. Paul is heartbroken. Paul is grief stricken. He sees the unbelief of his own people and it tears him apart. If anybody, anybody here have any family members or loved ones or spouses that are unbelievers, it tears your heart apart to see your children that you attempt to bring up in the Lord fall away. It breaks your heart to see a close friend of yours, not a believer. It should break our hearts to see people in unbelief that we know and love, maybe even people in the church. Paul is heartbroken. His countrymen, the people who have been given so much, as we will see in a moment, have turned away from the truth. And Paul's grief is so deep, it is so vast, that he actually wishes himself accursed and separated from, from Christ. And that word accursed is a word that comes into the English language. We see anathema. He wishes himself to be anathema, to be accursed, to be held under God's curse. If he could somehow take his salvation and, and give it to his people, he would gladly do so. He would sacrifice his own eternal salvation if it meant that his people would find salvation. He's wishing that God would damn him in hell if it would mean that his kinsmen would be saved. There's an incident that calls that is reminiscent of this in Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. Okay, so you have the golden calf incident. Moses is up on Sinai receiving the law and the people are down below. And, you know, when the cat's away, the mice will play, as it is said, and. You know, they're like waiting their 40 days. They're like, well, where's Moses? Where's Moses? You know, who's going to lead us through the wilderness? We better, you know, they go to Aaron. It's like, Aaron, make for us a God to lead us through the wilderness. And Aaron's like, yeah, okay. He says, here, give me all the gold of your earrings. And they throw in the fire and they make this calf. And then, you know, Joshua comes up to Moses on the mountain and says, hey, the people are partying down there. You know, there's a battle going on. It's like, Moses like, no, that's not a battle that you hear. It's the sound of the people sinning. Let's go down and take care of this. So he goes down. He gets angry at them. 
Then he, you know, there's this great kind of purging of the people. The Levites rise up and they slay a bunch of the Jews for in judgment. And then right after that, Moses then commands the people to dedicate themselves to reestablish holiness with God while he goes back up on the mountain to intercede for them. So the next day he tells the people that perhaps I can go up there and make atonement for you for your sin. So the next day, Moses goes before the Lord on Sinai and pleads with God using words very similar to Paul's in Exodus 32, 32, where he says to God, but now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. So Moses, standing in the gap between God and his people, says, look, please forgive their sin. And if not, then take it upon me. I will stand in their place as long as you do not punish your people. Paul would rather be damned than see his people fall under God's curse. And then in verses 4 and 5, Paul goes on to list many of the blessings and the benefits that the Israelites had. Many, you know, I mean, they, you know, if, you know, we talk about white privilege and this privilege and that privilege. Well, the Jews had privilege, okay? They had privilege as God's people. And we see here, they had the adoption of sons. They had the glory. They had the covenants, the law, the temple and its worship. They had national promises. They had the patriarchs. And then finally they had, they were the people through whom the Messiah came into the world. God gave them many, many blessings. Yet they still failed. That's the point. Paul's like, look, you had so much. You had so much more than the Gentiles had, yet you failed. How could they not believe? How could they not believe? That's the question. And Paul goes on in verses 6 through 13 to sort of give them a reason why. He's like, and the the point is, is that not all Israel was Israel, is where he gets at. Paul's lament in verses 1 through 5 would stand, given that lament, it would stand to reason that God's word had somehow failed. I mean, God chose his people. Yet many of them fallen away, it would seem, at least on the surface, that his word has failed. God made covenants, promises with Israel, yet many Jews remained in unbelief and have rejected their Messiah. So the question can be asked, has God's word failed? What do you guys think? Can God's word fail? Let's take a vote. No? Okay, I'm saying, okay, no one's saying God's word can fail. That's good, because God's word cannot fail. Paul answers in the negative in verse 6. Where he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. God's word never fails. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? God cannot, God does not lie. If God makes a promise, it will come to pass. He will keep it. So then this disconnect between God's promises and covenants and Israel's failure to find salvation is found in the fact in verse 6 that not all Israel are Israel. Not all who descend from Israel are Israel. Not all who are ethnic Jews are true Jews. The fundamental error in Jewish thinking was that while God chose Israel as his chosen people and gave them many blessings and national promises, this in no way meant that every single Israelite would be saved by grace through faith. 
If you remember when we looked way back in Romans chapter 2, and we saw that being a true Jew is not a matter of circumcision or having the law. And then Paul, then he says, in other words, you are not saved because of your ethnic identity, nor do you escape God's wrath because of your ethnic identity. And he closes that chapter in Romans chapter 2 by saying, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from a God. Bottom line, being a member of ethnic Israel is no guarantee of being a member of the true or the spiritual Israel. And while being a Jew entitled one to many great and precious promises, salvation has always been, remember Romans 4, salvation has always been by grace through faith. By grace through faith. So that's the principle. Now Paul demonstrates and illustrates this principle, the fact that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel by looking at the lives of the patriarchs. And first up is Abraham in verses 7 through 9. Where he says, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And we all know the story of Abraham, right? He was childless for many, 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 many years, right? And he was, you know, and God continued to promise him, it's like, you will have abundant descendants. Look at the stars. If you can number them, that's how many descendants you'll have. Look at the sand of the sea. That's how many descendants you'll have. And every time God promised that, Abraham went back home and still no pregnancy, no babies, no nothing. In fact, God's like, look, I still remain childless. (laughs) And a member of my own household will then inherit everything that I have. So then, of course... Abraham and Sarah concoct the plan in their own minds. Maybe we need to help God along. (laughs) Bad plan, right? It's never a good idea to help God along. But they have a child. uh, Abraham and Hagar get together. They have a child who's named Ishmael. And even though though Abraham wanted Ishmael to be the the child of promise, God said, that's not the child of promise, (laughs) That is the child of your own flesh. That is the child of works. The promised child will come and I will bring him to you. At this time next year, Sarah shall have a son. Isaac, the miracle baby, not Ishmael, was the one through whom the covenant would continue. And here we see, so you've got Ishmael, you've got Isaac, and God chooses Isaac. He sovereignly chooses Isaac. Even though both came from the loins of Abraham, even though both are Abraham's descendants, it is Isaac through whom the promise goes. And that's what we see in verse 8. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. Here that phrase, children of flesh, just means children by natural descent, whereas children of God are those who are saved by grace through faith. Go back again to Romans 8, 14, and 16. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And then Romans 9, verse 9, is just a citation of Genesis 18, 10, in which God specifically promises 
Abraham a son through Sarah. So that's Abraham. What about Isaac and his two sons, Esau and Jacob? Well, we see that in verses 10 through 13. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had, done, uh, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So you could look at Abraham and you could probably rationalize, well, of course Ishmael wasn't the child of promise because Abraham and Sarah went against God's plan. But how about Esau and Jacob? See, now Esau and Jacob kind of blow that argument in the water because here you've got twins born of the same parents, born at the same time. You couldn't have two people who are more genetically alike. Now, they didn't look alike, of course, <laughs> but they were at least the same genetic material as as Isaac and Rebecca. Romans 9.10 tells us that Esau and Jacob not only were twins, but that Rebecca had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Really just emphasizing the fact that this situation is different than Ishmael and Isaac. Whereas Ishmael and Isaac, you had same father, different mothers. Here you've got the same parents. Here they are not just children born separately. They are twins. So whatever you could say about Ishmael and Isaac is invalidated when you get to Esau and Jacob. Yet again, in verse 11, this is a key verse, it is not on the basis of your pedigree or your parentage that God chooses. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The twins were not yet born, much less they had no record of works to be examined. They were morally speaking, they were clean slates. Yet God chose one over the other. The promise went to Jacob and not to Esau because God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. God chose Jacob over Esau because it pleased him to do so. Period. End of sentence. And then Romans 9, verses 12 through 13, again, cite two Old Testament passages to back that up. Genesis 25, 23, and Malachi 1, 2 and following. And the point is this, that God, as sovereign, as the king, as the ruler, as the creator of all things, is absolutely free, completely free, to choose one for salvation and to pass over another. And unless you think this choice was somehow based on something God foresaw in their lives, the case of Jacob and Esau puts that argument to rest. God sovereignly elects some and passes over the rest. And the, the point that Paul is trying to make here is that God has always been doing this. This has been throughout the history of the Jewish people. Now, I really wanted to go through verse 18, but I think I'm going to have to stop here because we are running short of time. And we have a guest here this morning, so I don't want to cut his time short. But we'll pick up uh, here next week, Lord willing, in verse 14.